Well, good morning, church. That was lame. Good morning, church. I like that better. We are in a series called Replicate. And in this series, we are trying to say, as we visit our vision and purpose statements, like we do every year at this time, we're trying to look at it through a little bit different lens. We always talk about why we're here at Dunwoody Baptist Church. And if you are, are new to us today, I, I walk around before the service and I meet several of you who have been here three, four, five times, six times, first time. And uh, our Explore class that John talked about just a minute ago, that's kind of the, the, the gateway or the, the pathway class to let you know what we're about and to let us hear your story. And October the 2nd will be the next one of those. They're immediately after this service. We provide lunch for you. We want to get to know you and help you know kind of the, the, the journey that we're all on. The Discover Your Purpose Lab is today, and that's, uh, as John said, that's a chance for you to discover where you might fit in. We need volunteers I mean, there's so much stuff going on around here from the parking lot to the nursery to the student ministry to uh, all kinds of places that we need you to, to say yes if that's uh, uh, something that the Lord's put on your heart. And we, we've got several ambitious initiatives that are starting up uh, really, really soon, and we would love to have you uh, join us uh, in that. But what this month is about is to kind of visit our mission statement once again. For you who are new, uh, what we stand for here at Dunwoody Baptist Church is that we are passionately becoming more like Jesus. That's, that's our measuring stick. That's our standard. Are we becoming more like Jesus? And are we interested, invested, convicted, committed to transformation that our homes, our church, our community, and our world are impacted because we have chosen to be followers of Christ. And we think that we do that because we are learning as a community of faith to love God, love people, make disciples, and make a difference. Well, every August we visit that, and this August we're visiting it with a little bit of a twist, and that's why we call it Replicate. We want to love God, but we want others to learn how to love God too. We want to love people, and we want to teach others how to love people. We want to make disciples, and then we want those disciples to make disciples. We want to make a difference, and we want to uh, share that value, expand that footprint so that others join us in what it means to make a difference. You saw the bumper video with the laser, the 3D printer, and uh, each week we've made a different figurine based on uh, uh, maybe a, a little sculpture or a little uh, uh, something that we have around the office. The first week we did a, a little girl praying to talk about love God, and last week we, we did a little figurine of Jesus washing Peter's feet to talk about loving people. Well, today I wanted to show you the original that we, uh, we copied. Uh, this is a, a little sculpture we got in the office, and I really love it because it is a grandfather teaching his grandson how to fish. 
And you know the old saying, right? You give somebody a fish, they eat for a day. You teach them to fish, they eat for a lifetime. And, and, and so it, it, it made the making disciples piece kind of fall into place for me. Because to make disciples is to pass on the things that I've learned in the faith to someone else with the expectation that they will pass them on to somebody else. That's, that's sort of what we're about. And each week we've given our little figurine away to somebody who sort of exemplified that in our church. And so today our, our 3D copy of this, well, where's Bill Norman? Bill, I know you ran a marath- half marathon yesterday, but can you get your legs up and make your way up here? If he's limping a little bit, that's why. Bill has so exemplified what it is to make disciples in our young adult class, and Bill, I appreciate that more than you can know. I know this won't be in your treasured possessions, but uh, it's just a way to say thank you. We make disciples, and so today I want to talk about that, and I want to give you a quote I'm quoting myself, which seems very egotistical, but I wrote this in a book called Disciple, that disciple-making is not complete until the disciple becomes the disciple-maker. Discipleship is not complete until the disciple becomes the disciple-maker. Until this this process is communicated, the, the old cliche is that Christianity is always one generation away from extinction. And so, what we want to talk about today is how we pass that on to the next generation. So, today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 28 and 2 Timothy chapter 2. And if you've got a, a paper Bible, turn to it. If you've got a swipey thing, turn to it. There are some Bibles in the chairs in front of you. This is where I want to go. By the grace of God and the sustaining power of His Spirit, He has protected the church in every generation. When things were darkest, when things were going on in the world that, it, that it, it made absolutely no sense that Christianity would survive, either because of bad behavior on the part of Christians or because there was persecution outside the church, there's a lot of, of times in our history that, that it makes no sense that Christianity survived, and yet it did. Our mission is to pass on the lifestyle, the discipline, the conviction, the commitment that come with discipleship to the next generation. And today, what I'd love to do is just to describe that process, to describe just a little bit what it means to be a disciple. But first, uh, a couple of definitions. To make disciples is to secure the handoff so that another can continue the race. In the history of the Olympic Games and the World Championship track events. The American relay teams have done one of three things. They have finished first, they have finished second, or they've been disqualified. (laughs) And finished third, fourth, fifth, sixth, one, two, or not at all. And except for two times in that whole duration, The disqualification has been because they couldn't pass the baton from one runner to the next. Now, let that soak in. Since 1988, the Americans have been disqualified 
from the relay, the 4 by 100 relay in the top events in the world, the Olympics and the World Championships, 13 times, all because they dropped the baton. Now, I am very cautious being a non-athlete when I tore up my knee, the doctor said, there's no hurry to get it fixed because you're not an athlete. I go, you had to go there? <laughs> but it would seem to me they would have baton class. They would figure this out, figure out the exchange. They, they have to hand it off successfully within the, the distance allotted, the exchange zone. If they don't do that, get this part, the race for them is over. There, there have been times where the anchor leg of the relay never got run because the baton didn't make it that far. At whatever point the baton is dropped, the race is over. And, and I kind of want to let that image soak in. Now let me drop a few definitions. What is a disciple? Well, the word is both a verb and a noun. Kind of like barbecue. You can barbecue or you can eat barbecue. Well, you can be a disciple or you can disciple someone else. To be a disciple is to be a follower of Christ. That's simple. And to be a follower of Christ, it means that at some point in your life, you have realized that you have done things, thought things, been things, participated in things that don't honor God. The Bible calls that sin. And in Romans it says that we all sin and fall short of what God would have us to be. And then the Bible says that if we continue in that sin, the the, the consequence for that is that we are eternally separated from God. The Bible calls it death. The wages of sin, the payment for sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean? In Romans 5, 8, the Scripture says that God demonstrated His love for us. He loved us so much that He sent His only Son to be that sacrifice so that our sin wouldn't have to separate us from God. How do we make that exchange? How do, we, how do we take the baton? Romans 10, 9 and 10 says if we confess with our mouth, if we agree that this is a plan that, that, that's best, if, if we agree that I need to become a follower of Christ, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we'll be saved. That's the word the Bible uses to talk about someone who's become a follower of Christ. They are saved from eternal damnation. They are saved from the wrath of God that is aimed at sin. And that's the starting point for being a disciple. And I say that because a lot of times we, we in church life try to, try to paint it another way. Well, we're trying to help you be the best version of yourself. We're trying to shape our culture. We're trying to help this world to be a better place. We're interested in justice. We're interested in, in helping you as a parent. We're interested in helping you in your finances. All of that is true. But the starting point for being a Christian, the starting point for being a disciple, the starting point for being a follower of Christ is to say, God, I need you in my life and I can't fix me. 
So that's kind of the starting point, and at the end of the service, I, I hope that you will sort of do a, a mental uh, evaluation, and if you haven't ever come to that place where you said, God, I want to offload my sins on you, I, I need to be a follower of Christ, and I know I can't fix me. We have people out in the lobby that are wearing name tags, that are wearing green shirts. We have pastors all over the place. You've met most of them, Brian, Alan, Jeff, John, Bridget. They, they, they are here to help you start that conversation where you can be a follower of Christ. Because to be a follower of Christ is disciple. That's a a noun, but to disciple someone is to participate in the process where someone else might become a follower of Christ. So in your Bibles or your phone or tablet or wherever you are, there's a, a passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 28 Beginning in verse 16, I've just got a part of that up here, but beginning in verse 16 and all the way through verse 20, it's the last words that Jesus spoke while He was on earth. And, and, And as we go, we make disciples, we baptize disciples, and we instruct disciples. Here's the Scripture. The verse that we're going to look at says, "...all authority..." has been given unto me in heaven and earth, and go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, let, me, let me break that down just a little bit. If you look all the way back at verse 16, the context is there. Jesus had been crucified. He had been buried. On the third day, that Sunday morning, that Easter Sunday morning, he rose from the dead. But in Acts chapter 1, Luke tells us that after that, after the resurrection, he hung around for a little over a month, 40 days, and he taught some more and fellowshiped some more and encouraged some more. And it wasn't like he was Uh, with them all the time. It's like he would show up and disappear. He would show up and disappear. But in the context of all of that, he said, guys, I need you to go back to Galilee from Jerusalem. Galilee is a uh, a little north. It's it's, it's around the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee. And, And I need you just to wait for me at the mountain. Now, apparently, they knew where he was talking about. Maybe it was the same place he preached the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7. I don't know. But they knew where he was talking about, so they went there to wait. Verse 16, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped. I love the honesty of the Bible. You see the next line? But some doubted. I'm going, really? He used to be dead, and now he's not, and you're still doubting? And I get all self-righteous and go, well, if I'd have walked around with him for three years, I wouldn't have any doubts. But then God says, oh, yeah, you would. You're, you're human. And so there's, there's almost built into this whole passage a, a description of what a disciple noun is. Look at what it says. The eleven disciples went to Galilee as they were told. So a disciple is obedient. A disciple does what they understand is what God wants them to do. 
A disciple worships. When they saw him, they worshiped. Natural reaction. I see a resurrected Jesus, I'm going to worship. Uh, so, so there was a, a natural response. But then it says, some doubt it. A disciple's honest. We, we, we don't try to pretend or, or, or hopefully we don't, we don't justify what people say about us as hypocrites. We're honest. The word that's used there for doubt, it doesn't necessarily mean cynicism. It's more like hesitancy. It's more like I'm still trying to get my mind around this. It, it, It sort of makes us think of doubting Thomas, one of the disciples who told Jesus, I'll believe when I when I see the wounds from the crucifixion. That's when I'll believe. I love that Matthew included that. Because when we are disciples, there is an honesty about saying, I don't understand everything about God's plan. I don't understand how all of the, I don't even understand everything the Bible says. But I want to. I'm trying. It's not that I'm cynical. It's just that I'm hesitant. My, my mind is blown. I'm trying to wrap my mind around it. Then he says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority. If you look down at your Bible or your swipey thing, you can circle the word all four times. Verse 18, all authority. Verse 19, all nations. Verse 20, all that I've commanded you. Verse 20, I'm with you always. There's an an all-encompassing aspect of, of what's going on here about discipleship. A disciple is surrendered. He says, all authority on earth has been given to me. And if Jesus has all the authority, Alan doesn't have any of it. All is sort of a, a measuring stick. All over here means none over here. And let's say three-quarters of the authority has been given to me, and Alan, you get a fourth of it. He says, all authority. That, that means I surrender to His authority. Do I understand it all the time? No. Do I want to all the time? Really no. But it's His, all authority. A disciple is surrendered. I like this part. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Do we have any grammar police in here? Anybody who basically understands the English language? The grammar there is obviously an imperative. Go, therefore, and make disciples. But if you were to break down the language, the word go there is not the strong imperative in the sentence. The word go is more of an assumption, a transitive. As you are going, and then the strong imperative in the verse, make disciples. So the make disciples is the the strong part, and as I read it really closely, it occurred to me that it would never cross the mind of Jesus that He would have to tell us to go. (laughs) That wouldn't be part of His arithmetic. Oh, and I'm going to have to beg you to go and tell people about this good news. So as you go, make disciples. There's the verb, disciple people, make disciples. 
So uh, a disciple is obedient to that, that, that mission, surrendered to that mission. But then he says, baptizing them. Well, why do we baptize? What is baptism? We've got a baptistry right over here. And in the Baptist church, we let you be all the way underwater when you were baptized, complete immersion. And that's sort of a picture. But back in the day when he talked about baptizing them, he meant a public identification. So is baptism necessary for you to repent of your sins and be saved? No, it's not. But he says when you're baptized... There is sort of a a public identification. It's like putting on the jersey for your favorite team. I'm not ashamed to be identified as a a supporter, as a fan of of Team Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm all in. And so baptism is a public statement. It's a a public way. And so Jesus said, as you go, make disciples. And and when you make a disciple, when somebody understands that they need to repent of their sins and begin to follow Jesus, baptize them. Let them be publicly identified with the community of faith. So a disciple is identified. And then a disciple is teachable. Make disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And then he gives a promise. A disciple's teachable. But all that's kind of scary to me. I'm obedient. I'm identified. I'm surrendered. I'm honest. Uh, Okay, I'm, I'm out here. And Jesus says, I'm out there with you. You know, it would be almost never that a president of the United States would be on the front lines of battle. I, I think the, the last one we know about was Eisenhower. Normally, they're way back from the battle. And in First Samuel, Second Samuel chapter 11 and verse 1, the, the prequel to the famous sin of David with Bathsheba, it says, it was in the spring of the year when the kings go to war, but David was in the palace. David was a king. It was spring. Why wasn't he at war? Why wasn't he out there in the battlefield? Well, what Jesus says right here is that He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the Creator of the universe, the Savior of the world, and He is on the front lines with us. When we go, He goes. I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. So Jesus kind of gives us the why of discipleship. He helps us understand the the noun part. A disciple is obedient. A disciple is honest. A disciple surrenders. A disciple is identified. A disciple is is teachable. A disciple is confident in, in the presence of Jesus. But the Apostle Paul was a lot more of a a pragmatist. He he showed us in real terms what that looks like. 
Because we have stories. So in the Old Testament, we've got lots of stories. Moses and, and Joshua and Elijah and Elisha and, 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 and Samuel and Eli. And we, we've got those examples where an older generation passed the baton of faith to another generation. But in the New Testament, we've got it very plain. Of course, Jesus with His disciples. But Paul, a little later... He sort of helped us understand it even better. And in 2 Timothy 2.2, we call that generational discipleship. Went to Dallas this weekend and spent some time with my son and my grandson. And this is a, a picture of us at the cafeteria at the Dallas Zoo. Uh, it's hot in Texas this time of year, and so we went into an extremely overpriced restaurant to take advantage of their air conditioning and eat some chicken nuggets. And uh, I took this picture because as I looked at my son and my grandson across the table, there was an overwhelming sense of responsibility that I am called to speak into their lives that I am the grandfather, that is the son, that is the grandson. And while others will speak into them spiritually, while churches and pastors and youth pastors and VBS directors will speak into their lives, God gave me sort of an overwhelming sense of it is my job as a, as a generational grandfather to speak into their lives. Well, Paul understood that in terms of, of spiritual terms, and, and, and he had lots of guys that, that followed him, and, and Paul's statement was always, you imitate me as I imitate Christ. You don't do what I do unless it's what Jesus did. So I'm going to imitate Jesus, you imitate me, that's what I want to say to my son and grandson. Try to ignore all the bad things I do, all the mistakes that I make and imitate me when I'm imitating Jesus. That's what disciple the verb means. And so in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2, he says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, in trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And if you're paying attention, there are four generations of disciples there. There's a great-grandfather, a grandfather, a son, and a grandson. Paul, Timothy, faithful men, and others. And we see in there the, the, the expectation that there is generational discipleship. Discipleship doesn't happen unless the disciple becomes the disciple-maker. And so it's, it's our job to pass on the convictions and, and the surrender and the obedience and the identification, all those things we saw in that last passage. It's our job to make sure that the generations that follow us understand that. Paul goes on from here to say, just in case you didn't get it, let me give you three illustrations of what this looks like. And, and he talks about a soldier. He talks about a um, athlete, and he talks about a farmer in the verses that follow too. 
He says a soldier never gets entangled in the things of the world. And the, the word entangled there is like a sheep getting caught in the briars by its wool. He says that, 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 that when, you, when you get caught up in things that don't matter, you're immobilized in terms of your effectiveness. He said an athlete always finishes the race by playing by the rules. Maybe he had in his mind passing the baton. You don't play by the rules, you don't get to finish the race. You don't get to finish the race, you never get the prize. An athlete finishes the race because he plays by the rules. And he says a farmer gets the first of the crop. And, and that feels a little selfish to me. But I start thinking about it. A, a soldier knows immediately whether the battle has been won. An athlete knows immediately if the game has been won. But a farmer is the one who demonstrates perseverance. Plants the seed, waters the seed, talks to the seed, prays for sunlight, but there's absolutely nothing he can do to make that seed grow. And yet the disciple who plants the seed in a disciple, hopefully to plant the seed in another disciple, there's a, a sense of patience and waiting and understanding that God has to provide everything that that seed needs to come out of the ground. And so the farmer is the first to see it. Why? Because he's been expectantly watching it. So disciple, noun, obedient, surrendered, teachable, identifying, all that, honest, worshipful. A disciple verb pours into another generation all the things that, that, that Paul has said to Timothy. He says, you just tell these to them who can teach others. I, I, I'm not looking for really, really beautiful men or really, really skilled men. I'm looking for faithful men who can then teach others also. This week, John Hume brought me a blog, and uh, the blog is describing an experience that the writer of this blog had in an Apple store. And so, this is what the blogger wrote. He said, not long ago, I was in the Apple store because my iPhone didn't work. A young lady was helping me. She probably was 20. When she was working on my phone, I started talking to her about her job. I asked, have you been working here long? She said, not really, just a few months. You like working here, I said. Her face lit up. Oh, yes. Seeing her enthusiasm, enthusiasm, I decided to inquire further. Well, I bet it's hard learning all this stuff. He was probably my age, and it is. Said, how did you learn this? She said, well, I just went online. There were some job openings. I registered, two-day seminar at a local hotel. After two days, they placed me in a store and assigned me to a mentor. For the first few weeks, I just wore regular clothes. And the mentor wore the bright apple shirt and lanyard. And I just watched everything he did and took it all in. After dealing with a customer, he would ask me if I had any questions or we would discuss that particular situation. By this time, she had stopped working on my phone and was completely into the story, so I just listened. Then she said, after a while, I put on the apple shirt and the lanyard, and my mentor dressed in regular clothes. 
And he followed me around as I took care of the customers. If I had a problem, he was ready to jump in and help. And when he thought I was ready, he just set me free to go out on my own. Now I'm prepared to do the same things with another trainee. The author made the connection. This is the the preacher who was observing. He said what she described was disciple-making, Jesus-style. Jesus took in curious men, drew them to faith, let them shadow Him for a season. Then He cut them loose to go out on their own. When they were ready, He watched them reproduce into 72 more men. His plan was so simple and yet so profound. Jesus drew men to Himself, let them follow Him until they got it, and then He sent them out to reproduce. Now I wish the author had stopped there to let me draw my own conclusions, but he continued to beat me up. He says, when I look at the modern church, I'm grieved that somehow along the way we've missed it. We've missed the strategy of Jesus. Somehow we've traded making disciples for making decisions. Somehow we traded a clear process with running programs. We stopped moving people through stages of maturity and started shuffling people between services and churches. Somehow along the way, we thought that if we got people into worship and in a group, that they would figure it out all along by themselves, become strong, when in fact the church has become weak. We've forgotten that the church exists to train up men and women who will take the gospel to their offices and neighborhoods in the world, and we just started trying to fill seats. What Jesus gave us was simple, reproducible, and powerful. Apple gets it. Do we? Disciple-making, discipleship is not complete until the disciple becomes the disciple maker. Would you pray with me? God, we are grateful for the way that you love us, for the clear plan that you've given us. And it is my prayer, Father, that in every single person who's in this room, that you put in their mind three faces of people that you wish for them to disciple. That they are looking for faithful men who can teach others also. But my prayer is that for the disciples in the room, you would place in their mind three people that this week they would begin to challenge them just to have conversations. God, for persons in this room who have never committed their life to you, who have never said, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. I pray that this will be the day they start that conversation by going to a green-shirted or name-tagged person in the lobby, by finding one of us pastors and saying, I want to begin the conversation to repent of my sins and to embrace Jesus as my Savior. Let this be the day. Let this be the day when this church begins to practice discipleship, Jesus' style. And this is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.